Good morning, church. I'm George Georgopoulos. I'm so humbled and honored to be able to share with you all today uh, with the church that I grew up in and the church that I love. Um, and my role today is to set the table for our brother Gilbert, who I'm, we're going to be tag-teaming this sermon today. And for those of you that were here on Good Friday, I had the impossible task of following Gilbert. Uh, I don't have to do that this morning, so that's a good thing. Gilbert will bring us home here in, in a few minutes. So this is week three of our series, People of Promise. And Pastor Pat has already laid an amazing foundation for us and talks about how the Bible is God's nonfiction story of redemption from start to finish for his people. And today is relevant because we're going to unpack the means or the vehicle by which God has used to redeem his creation. And God has chosen to use covenant promises to do that. Just before we get started, though, let's pray. If you'd bow your heads with me. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that the more we learn about you, God, and the more we learn about your word, the more in awe we are of you, God. God, I ask that you would speak through me today as your vessel, as your servant. God, I confess I feel a bit like Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when he said, well, who am I to go do that and talk to Pharaoh about your people? And your response to him was, I will be with you. So God, I just pray that you would speak through me today. I pray that we, we would all leave here changed and impacted because of your truth and your word. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so my hope for today is that I'll answer three key questions for us when it comes to this series, People of Promise. And the first one is, what is a covenant? The next one is, why is that important for us to understand the nature of a covenant and how that relates to God? And thirdly, what covenant relationships are many of us in right now, and how does that impact and apply to our lives today? So the first question is this, what is a covenant? We hear this word in, in Scripture. We hear that the Lord uses this term. And this is actually a term uh, that has Hebrew origins, and it literally means to cut. So a covenant means to cut, and that referred to the cutting of animal sacrifices when covenants were made back in the ancient times and they'd cut the animal into two, and the blood would run together in the center as they made a covenant. And probably the, the closest term that we have in our current cultural context is probably the word contract, although there's some major differences between a contract and a covenant. Contract typically involves the exchange of property, or maybe a good or a service. A covenant is very different. It defines specifically a relationship that you are entering into. So a covenant is a term that describes a type of relationship that you have with someone else. And also the main difference is this. When you enter into that type of relationship, it's not only between you and another person. It's between you and another person, and then you invoke the Lord to come and be part of that relationship as well. And you are then accountable to the Lord for keeping the terms of that covenant. So I want you to take note of this as well as I was studying this. I found this out, that the, the word covenant is the strongest word that can be used when defining a particular relationship or expressing the significance of a relationship that you are in. And that's why these types of relationships are extremely rare back then and today, and they were highly sought after as they are still today, which we'll talk about this morning also. And then briefly, there are three types of covenant relationships. There's the one-sided. That was back, back when in the ancient times when a superior king would overtake an inferior king or kingdom. They would impose a one-sided covenant over the people that they would then rule. And those people either kept their ter those terms of that one-sided covenant or they were put to death. There's a two-sided covenant, which we're very familiar with and we'll unpack further today, which is both sides enter into this relationship voluntarily and it's mutually beneficial for those that are involved. And then there's my favorite, and this is the one that the Lord uses ultimately in his word. It's the self-imposed covenant. Terms are imposed on oneself. They're unconditional. And we'll hear more about this one today. This is the primary 
covenant that the Lord uses in his word as he makes covenant promises to redeem his people. So briefly, covenant practices of that day. How did you enter into a covenant relationship back in the Hebrew times? So to enter into that type of relationship, there was a ceremony that was held. And this may sound familiar to some of you as you hear these, these things about how they did it back then. Think of something in our current cultural context that this might resemble. A ceremony was held. Each party came together and expressed their terms of the covenant together. There was a sacrificial animal that was cut in half, cut in two. And where the blood ran together of those two halves, those that were entering into this, this relationship would walk through that blood as a symbol of two becoming one in covenant relationship. There was an exchange of identities, so new names were typically given. And there was a covenant meal to follow. So, and I have this first slide here for you all to see this, that it's very significant back then in the cultural practice, but it's very significant as we look at the Bible and how the Lord has used covenants to understand the significance of the death and the symbolism of the death of the sacrificial animal. And there's four key symbols that that death symbolized. First, the two becoming one, the death to self as you enter into that relationship. Next, the commitment to live for the other person is the death of your independent life. Death of the animal signified, symbolized the death of your independent life. Next is covenant terms are kept until death. And finally, back then, if covenant terms were not kept, it warranted the death penalty. So now that we've defined a little bit more about what a biblical covenant is and what it means, let's just unpack this a little bit here. Why is it important for us to understand the nature of a covenant and how that relates to God himself? So as we just heard, a covenant is kept until death when it's made. And a broken covenant warrants the death penalty. So God, when he bound himself to his self-imposed covenants, would be worthy of death himself if he didn't keep his covenant promises. In the, this entire series, People of Promise we're going through, will illustrate the covenants that God bound himself under penalty of death because he will carry out what he said he will. And the best part about this when I studied it was this, that the entirety of Scripture is clear, that God didn't bind himself to his covenant promises in a legalistic way or that he has to do it for us begrudgingly. God keeps his covenants to us because of his loving kindness for us. Because of his faithfulness. Because it's who he is. And he takes great joy in keeping his covenant promises with his people to redeem his creation. And as, as I was studying this, I thought of this, and you might be thinking the same thing. Why did the Lord choose to use covenant relationship or promises in his word? Because we all know that if the Lord says something, all he has to do is speak it, and it's true. If he says it, it's true, it's going to happen. He makes promises in the Bible in places, and we know those are rock solid as it, as it comes. Why then would he upgrade some of his key promises in the Bible to covenants? If you would, if you have your Bibles, and this will be a slide too, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 6, and the Lord really answers this question for us in his word. Why did he choose not just to say it, not just to promise it, but he chose to upgrade those promises, if you will, to the ultimate level, which is a covenant promise. So we're in Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 13. I'll give you all a few seconds to get there. And the heading of this passage, starting in chapter 6, verse 13, before it gets to chapter, or verse 13, it says, the certainty of God's promise is the heading of this passage. And I'll read it in verse 13. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Verse 16 says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, 
And in all their disputes, an oath is final confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, which is impo- it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as sure as a steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So we read that passage there. When I first read that as I was studying this, I thought, well, it doesn't say the word covenant in the passage. And did some more studying on that. And you can see in verse 16 and 17, it uses the word oath. And I found out that the same word and the same meaning for that word oath can be translated covenant. So God reveals to us right here in Hebrews why he chose not to just say it and why he chose not to just make it a promise. But he made a covenant with us. So why did he do that? Verse 18 and 19 says it clearly. That we may have strong encouragement and hold fast to hope. And 19 says, as sure as a steadfast anchor for the soul is why God did that. So why did he choose to increase some of his specific promises to covenants in the word? He did it for us. He did it for our benefit so that we could have encouragement and hold fast to hope and that we could have an anchor for our soul as we hold on to his covenant promises. And this just struck me as I studied this. Um, When God makes a self-imposed covenant with us, where it's unconditional and he sets the terms and he's bound himself to those terms, it's the surest thing to ever exist. There's nothing more ironclad than a self-imposed covenant that God has made. And we know this. God's word is the only truth there ever was, there is, and ever will be. And because of that, we can bet our lives and our futures and even our eternity on his covenant promises, according to Scripture. So we've touched on what a covenant is and why that matters to the Lord, how he's utilized that, why he did that. So I'd just like to spend the remainder of the time on this. What covenant relationships are many of us in right now? How is that relevant to our lives today? What does this all mean to us? So many of us at this very moment are in that sort of relationship. There may be some listening today that are in no covenant relationships. That is possible. There may be some in one covenant relationship. Or you could be at the absolute maximum according to scripture, which is two covenant relationships at any given time in your life. You're surely in one covenant relationship if you've done this, placed your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It's the ultimate exchange of identities as we talked about. Jesus took our sin on him and we received his righteousness. You're in covenant relationship with Jesus Christ if you've done that. The other relationship that the Lord still uses today is if you're married. If you're currently married. You're in covenant relationship with your spouse. And this is God's design program. They're that serious that you're only in up to a maximum of two at any given time in your lifetime. So we'll spend some time diving in on the implications now of what we know of what a covenant is to the Lord, how he's used it, and how that impacts our marriage now that we know what that relationship looks like. And for me, this was a major perspective shift on how I viewed my marriage. Um, It was also a perspective shift on how I found that the Lord views the institution of marriage. And something here that I just want to point out, that marriage is a term created and defined by God. I found myself doing this in the past in our current cultural context, using like a qualifier before the term marriage. Sometimes you hear people say like traditional marriage. Marriage is a term that needs no qualifier because it's created by God, according to him, between one man and one woman in covenant relationship with the Lord at the center, period. 
So if we look back at the covenant practice of the, that day, let's talk about how this plays in, into marriage today. We still have a ceremony today when we get married. We recite our vows to each other, which is the terms that were negotiated back then. We have vows with our spouse. Um, we enter into that relationship not only with each other, but with the Lord at the center. And this brings an entirely new gravity to the seriousness and type of relationship that marriage actually is. And we can see how, once we understand that, we can see how the enemy, also known as the, the prince of the power of the air, as Ephesians 2.2 calls him, has distorted and cheapened marriage in our current cultural context. And though there are certainly reasons, biblical reasons, for divorce and a marriage ending prior to death, God's design of a lifelong holy covenant relationship with your spouse has been turned into something that people start and they end based on their feelings. And if we look at Ephesians chapter 5, if you turn with me there to Ephesians, just two more passages we'll look at here. One is Ephesians 5, 22 through 25. And this helps us truly understand the covenant relationship that we're in when it comes to marriage. It brings new meaning to dying to yourself. And the heading here is wives and husbands. And verse 22 of Ephesians 5 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So just reflecting on that passage a bit, it just was made so clear to me. As a husband, I'm no longer at liberty to make decisions for my, based solely on myself. My wife's needs, my wife's thoughts, wants, desires, they now become my own. I've now given myself up for my wife according to Scripture. And although feelings do certainly play a role, we talked about how in this current culture, feelings are kind of the driver of a lot of things when it comes to marriage. Although feelings certainly play a role in biblical marriage, if you notice this in the passage here, there's no mention of feelings when it comes to the driving factors of our marriage at all. My marriage is based on the fact that I'm committed to the covenant that I've made, not only with my spouse, but I'm committed to the covenant I made with my Creator, who's at the center of our relationship. It's not driven by feelings at all. One more passage today, if we could turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, for those that have their Bibles. And this will help us to unpack the covenant relationship of marriage that God has given us as a gift. I'll just give you a moment to turn there. And it's up on the slide here as well. It says this. Again, the heading on this one, same as Ephesians, was wives and husbands. That's the heading for this passage. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see respectful and pure conduct. And maybe this passage applies to you currently, because maybe you are a wife right now. And maybe your husband is not holding up his end of the bargain. He's not living for Jesus in an area of his life or this season of your marriage right now. Maybe he's living contrary or disobedient to the word at times or for this season in your marriage. But you're still called to respectful and pure conduct. It seems like an impossible task when we think about it in our flesh, right? How do we do that? How do you do that? And as I was thinking about this, I feel the Lord just impressed this upon me. He said, well, you do that by remembering that your marriage is also a covenant relationship between you and your Heavenly Father. And relying on the fact that you're committed to that relationship, not only with your husband, but you're committed to that covenant relationship 
with your creator as well. That will allow you to continue to persevere and get through those times in your marriage. Just a few verses down in 1 Peter chapter 3, if we look at verse 7, that one's not on, up on the slide, but if you, if you want to turn to it, I'll also read it for us. It says this, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And that line about living in an understanding way, for me, is, was very, has been very personally convicting in my marriage and in my life. And the question I continue to ask myself and rely on the Holy Spirit for is this. Am I going about my days and my weeks together with my wife, understanding that God created my wife differently than he created me? Am I understanding of the fact that she may not do things the same exact way that I might do them? Am I understanding the fact that she might always see things, might not always see things the exact same way that I see things? And that she may not always approach situations the exact same way that I would approach things? Am I understanding of that? Am I loving and accepting and cherishing those differences that my wife has? Because the Lord is using those differences for my sanctification in my marriage. Am I trying to understand how she thinks and how she operates and why that is? And for men that are married or, or aspiring to be married, thinking about getting married, want to be married, God takes this very seriously. Because your very prayers could be hindered. By not walking with him in an under, by not walking with your spouse, your wife, in an understanding way. So ultimately, the question that I had that came to me that I wrestle with with the Spirit and pray that the Lord works through me in this in my marriage and with my wife is: Am I a student of my wife? Do I understand her? Hi, babe. That's my wife down there. Hi, babe. Hello. Uh, <laughs> So, Gilbert, if you'd like to come up. Um, that's what I had for today as I pass it off now to our brother Gilbert to take us home. Um, I just thank you so much for the opportunity to share with you the church that I love. And thank you so much, guys. Good morning. You know, you can write down today as being one of the most unique experiences that you had because you get two sermons. You know, you might, get, you might get used to this. This might become a good thing for you. But, uh, my name is Gilbert Russell. Uh, I, too, am an elder, but I'm elder more because I'm old, <laughs> not because I'm in, in service here at the church. But I tell you, what an what a awesome responsibility this is to stand in the, in the pulpit. I'm, if uh, most of you all that know me, I sit, I ride shotgun in the balcony with the best small group. I love you, I love you. They gonna boo me out of here. I'll be back up there in a, in a little bit. But I'm also awed because this particular subject, I came to know Christ 44 years ago this month. But I've never done a deep dive into this area of, of God's covenant relationship with us. I think oftentimes when I think about my relationship, I always think of it from the bottom up. Look at what I'm doing for you, God. And never really considered it from the top down. So I asked the question when we were doing the promos, when was the last time you were awed by God? Is today just another Sunday that you just come in here and you come into the house of the Lord, you sing the songs, but yet you don't see the reverence and the wonder of God? 
Well, today I just want, they won't let me, they, they told me I only got a few minutes, so I'm, I need to get busy. But I begin by asking you the, a question that I remember asking my wife. Again, part of my testimony is my wife and I came to know Jesus Christ three months after we got married. So our whole Christian life has been together. We've grown in his grace and knowledge at the same pace at the same time. But 44 years ago, I can remember asking her around that time, what was the greatest gift that was ever given to you? And you know what she said? No, she didn't say Gilbert. (laughs) I was like number four. (laughs) She says it's her salvation. Are you still awed by the idea that God would save you, that he would pick you out of all of this in the world, that he would save you? And so as as Pat was asking us to, to look at the covenant and come and bring our remarks, it reminded me of an experience that I had that goes back even further into the 20th century to a time when I was seven years old. I happened to be attending an AME Zion, an African Methodist Episcopal church, and at this church, I walked away with three things, three passages, three pieces of scripture that have kept me all the days of my life. Believe it or not, the first one was Genesis 1-1. What an easy verse to just read by all the time. And yet there's a rich significance in it for how we live our lives today because it talks of the creation that God, it talks of the intimacy that God took in creating. It just says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But if you don't think about the vastness of that statement, you read right by it. The second one had to do with shepherding. It was the 23rd Psalm, and it talks about how the Lord shepherds over us and cares for us. It rides that idea with creation because it talks about how God created everything for us. We're living today, we're living off the technology of what took place way back in the beginning. Whether you believe in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, uh, a creation that took thousands of years, or creation that took millions a year, it doesn't matter. But God created everything that we need, everything that we're living on today, every breath that you take, he made enough oxygen back then that we can exist and move and live and have our beings. And all he asks us to do, 240 times in scripture, he tells us to remember what he's done. And yet I submit to you that I I come in here sometimes on on Sunday and that's not, that can be the furthest thing from my mind. More concerned about what makes me happy than to remember how great a God it is that we serve. The third one was what I believe to be a New Testament covenant passage that we all know that we've all said But have you ever considered it from God's perspective? And that third one was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's a slide that, uh, a picture that a friend of mine, Steve Reed, sent me that's designed to make you look at the day that you had to make that decision, whether Christ was going to be Lord of your life or not. Can you put that up, Pete? This is the best rendition, I think, that I can find of what John 3.16 says. Because you see, this is Jesus' vantage point from the cross. 
You remember, it wasn't but a few hours before that he was asking God, was there another way? And God said no. God so loved. God so loved you and me. Love, agape. That self-sacrificing, giving of oneself done at great cost to benefit the unworthy. In covenant, in our covenant truth, it speaks of God's loving kindness on display, an intense, deep desire, an active pursuit to bless your covenant partner. It is both an attitude and an action. For God so loved the world, it speaks of of God's love for us in this way. It wasn't wasn't a reciprocal response. It's as George said, it was was one-sided. God was going to do this anyway. If he did it based on a reciprocal response, then it it would not have happened. Because you and I know that even in our walk today, we fall short. And we serve a God that's holy. And we can't just come into his presence any kind of way. And so God made up his mind then. Even when he created, even in that Genesis 1-1 experience, he knew then that in order for these people that he's going to create, and, and mind you, each one of us was in his mind even before the foundations of the world. we were all fearfully and wonderfully thought of and made by him. God so loved us. He so loved the world. I often think sometimes on Sunday morning, we're all coming from different places. Have you ever tried to picture that? I picture that sometimes when I walk in here and I look at each of you. Say each of us came from a different direction into that parking lot, from different places and different times. My brother George, I love this brother. I don't think I'm ever going to preach by myself ever again. I love this experience. I love sharing with him. But we weren't saved at the same time. We weren't saved in the same place, we weren't saved under the same circumstances, yet we all met. All of us that have named Christ as Lord and Savior of our life, we all met at the foot of the cross. It was there that we found redemption. It was there that we found that the, 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 the penalty of our sins was paid for by Christ on that, that cross. Because he loved the world, he loved, yes, you and I and each of us so much that the second point is that he gave, he sacrificed his only begotten son. Truth, the covenant truth there is that a covenant requires the sacrifice or the shedding of blood. See, God loved this creation. When you go back and you look at the whole Genesis account, God loved us so much. He created this wonderful, beautiful world for us to live in. And within three chapters, we blew it. We couldn't accept what it was that he had to give us, and so... God then, he didn't just think of it then, he thought of it even when he was creating. How do I bring them back to me? And in this covenant relationship that he had, he said, it's really going to take a life. And so as George so greatly described, this animal sacrifice, this idea of the giving of a life for the sake of someone else. God loved us that much. But what sacrifice was going to be acceptable to him? (laughs) 
there's a scripture that I, I love that really kind of points to this. And again, if I had time, I, I'd go into great lengths. But in Hebrews 10, there's a verse that just stands out to me that speaks to the depth of, of how God saw our need. And he says this. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. What was Jesus called? What did John the Baptist call Jesus? The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. No, it, it was it, the blood of bulls and sacrifice was good, but it was only good for maybe a year. This one, this was going to be a sacrifice that was going to cost God everything. And yet he did not hesitate because your life and my life was valuable, so valuable to him. I think it's 1 John 4, 9, it said, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be a propitiation, an atonement for our sins, 1 John 4, 9. The way in which God loved us was to sacrifice his innocent son on behalf of guilty sinners like you and me. How do you describe, how do you describe a love like that? Why am I worthy of that? Well, I've got a good friend down south in Louisiana. He and I, we do church all the time. Sometimes I preach and he leads music and the other times he leads music and I preach. But one of these times he made this profound statement that I will never forget, I'll hold on to it for the rest of my life, and I, speaks, I think it speaks to the truth of what a covenant relationship is like. He said God paid his own sacrifice because he wasn't going to demand it from anyone but himself. How great a love this God it is that we come in here and we sing to this God that we come in and we listen to messages about. How great a love is that? That I forget to, when I come in here, I get a chance to experience being in his very presence. And I'm not awed by it. Not only that, he said, so God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He said that whoever believes in him will not perish. Here's the covenant truth there. As George said, as he described it, it's death to the independent life and a commitment to live for the other person. You see, in a covenant relationship, you have to agree to the terms or else you can't have the ceremony because once you enter into the ceremony, you're committed till death. You can't break the terms and in a covenant, you're invoking God into it as well. So contracts are cool if you're a, a deal breaker. But in a covenant, you're inviting God to be a part of the direction that my life has taken when we made that, that when we made that decision to follow Christ, there was, it wasn't really in the fine print, it was really bold print. But you said, I will, I will be with you, I will follow you, Lord. And, and he did it in spite of the fact that he knew that I was going to fall short, that you were gonna fall short, that we were going to fall short, but it didn't change because God is not a promise. He, he doesn't break his promises. He keeps his word. Galatians 2.20 really speaks to the heart of what our decision for Christ is, is about. 
when Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus said himself in, in John eleven twenty five and 26, he said, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believeth thou this? Do you believe this? See, there was a divine exchange that took place on that day that you made a decision to receive Christ. You gave up your identity. You exchanged your life for Christ. You took off this, this shirt, this shirt of, uh, of, of unrighteousness. Uh-oh, this ain't going to work. Yeah, there we go. And look at what I got in return. No longer am I just Gilbert Russell. Now, by God's design, by God's definition, I'm not only a child of God, he says, I'm a, I'm a man of God. Whoa. I'm not, I'm not worthy. You're, you're right. None of us are worthy. But did God, did God change his mind? Did he, did he disqualify us afterwards? No. He still sees us through the lens of the one who died for us because he took on our unrighteousness and put on himself and put on us a cloak of righteousness so that now, so that now whenever I come into his presence, he doesn't see me in my unrighteousness, he sees only Christ. And so our life has been changed. It's been made different. We've made a decision. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away and new things have come. And so, so because, because we're no longer seen in that particular fashion, and because we've accepted this truth that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed, because I have believed, I've confessed with my mouth Jesus as Lord and believed in my heart that God has raised him from the dead. I'm saved. I've got new life. Yea, I'm no longer under the penalty of that death the death that separates me from God, I'm no longer under that. Will I physically die? Yes. But to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for those of us who have put our faith and trust in him. So not only just now, but forever, forever we get to live with the Lord forever, and that's the last part of that verse. It says, I will not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, I'm no longer the fourth principle here. Is a covenant requires you keep its terms until death. And for those of us that have lost loved ones in Christ, as David told, talked about his son, they can't come back to us, but we can go to them. So you don't have that. You don't have that. We just transition into the life that God promised us in this covenant relationship. We don't die. We just go to be with him forever. We, we, we cease being down here. There's a, there, I want to go to the, uh, the Philippians verse. 
it says, for our citizenship now is in heaven. When we've made that decision for Christ, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our lowly condition into conformity with his glorious body by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. That's why I can wear this shirt. I can wear this shirt. And even as the end of Psalm 23 says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So John 3.16 gives us the gospel reason for the new covenant with mankind. God loved the creation he made, but that love came at a price. Not to us, not to us, but to God. He had to sacrifice his unique son, Jesus, in place of his creation in order to transfer the benefits of that sacrifice to the ones who would not believe. And anyone that's sitting in here now that has a relationship, we were once on that side where we didn't believe. And we must always be reminded of that. That's not, we must not forget it. You're not under the condemnation of it. But we must not never forget that there's still a lost world out there that we must reach because God take, is making the initiative to have a relationship with his creation, not the other way around. But see, not everyone in the world will benefit from his, this sacrifice of his son. Only those believing those that, that place their trust and confidence in the finished work of his son, Jesus, trusting in his work to save us from the eternal wrath of God reserved for those who don't believe. Last picture, Pete. This picture... This picture hangs in, has, has hung in every place that I've worked for over 40 years. When you look to the right, you see that, that that's the world. To the left, that's the world. That's the world we live in. And if we're Bible readers, we know that this world is not going to last forever, this world as it exists. And you and I have to make a, a decision. Yea, I'm speaking to that person that's here today that, that thinks no one knows about their, their not, not, not having a relationship with Christ. They've been coming, they've been checking off the box but they've never done a deep dive into what this relationship with God is all about. They've wanted the exchange, but they've never taken the step, and, and they believe it's them making the step, and I'm saying, no, today is the day of salvation because George has, sh has shared it with you, I'm sharing it with you, and you've been coming here all along, and the worship team has been sharing it with you as well. God wants you today. This is the last day that you walk out of Moraine Valley unsure. This is the last day that if you've got questions about this relationship and what God has done for you, today is the day that you don't walk out the door. You can, you can get all of your answers. You can walk out of here with an assurance of your relationship, of God's relationship with you and your relationship with him. So God loved us so much that he gave us a promise that has a covenant attached to it that says he'll do the heavy work. He'll keep the air, he'll keep the oxygen flowing. 
He'll even take time for you to grow in his grace and in his knowledge and in his love. But are you willing to make today the day that you just don't walk in and out of here, but that you commit to entering into this covenant in which he said he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us, and he'll be with us always, even unto the end of the age. For God so loved the world. You know, this is a good practice we used to do when um, back in the 20th century, we would sometimes, we would take our Bible and any character in there, we would scratch something out and we would put our name in it. Because then the Bible tended to be a lot real. It felt like he was speaking to me, whoever it was this author was. I wonder if you might do this with me as a church. We could do this together. Let's just read John 3.16. But you see that blank that's there? As we say this out loud, I want you to speak your name. I'm going to say that when Gilbert believes in him. I want you to speak your name into it. And then we'll close. Let's read together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, that when Gilbert believes in him, he will not perish, but have eternal life. This is the covenant that God has with us. And here's the promise. And then I pray. It's from Jude 24, and I never, uh, this is my favorite. This is what God promises. He says to him, promises us, unto him who's able to keep us from falling or to keep us from stumbling and to present us faultless, faultless before the presence of God's glory with great joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power. Hallelujah! Now, henceforth, and forevermore. And this is, we've got a great series ahead of us. I hope everyone that here is excited about what God's going to teach us about himself because of his covenant with us. Amen.